conversation where ideas matter. Certainly ideas can shape markets, but they also can change the world. And today we have a couple of change agents in the room with me. Um, remarkable way, serendipitously, we came across each other. And Brian Cook at Marathon Oil, I wanna shout out to you because you started this all a year and a half ago when you brought yoga into our new language of security. Uh, these are two high-end business executives who had to figure out, just like all of you, had to figure out how to bring a different kind of mindset to their leadership. And out of that came a company, the Center for Compassionate Leadership. I want to introduce you today to the CEO and founder, founder of Compass uh, the Center for Compassionate Leadership, Laura Berland, and her partner in crime, the Chief Operating Officer of Compassion Center for Compassionate Leadership, Evan Harrell. Great having you folks. Thank you. Thank you, Ron. They are uh, sitting in what state? Uh, we're in the, the far east end of New York State in a little surf town called Montauk. Oh, well, we have quite a few people in this community in and around you. Is it, is it very hot there right now? No, it is probably the most beautiful day we've had all year. So we're very grateful. We try to learn how to, you know, embrace the weather, whatever it is. But today we can embrace it wholeheartedly for exactly what it is. Gorgeous. <laughs> well, Laura, I always tell people it, it, uh, it's sunny every day in Seattle. It just happens to be wet once in a while. Exactly. <laughs> So we're going to have some fun today. Uh, first, uh, because our community, you, you're going to want to stick all the way through this. This is going to go for about 20 or 30 minutes because this is your journey, you leaders. This is your journey. But first, a quick uh, introduction to the background. Laura, you first. Why don't you give a little introduction uh, how you, not what you did specifically, that'll be on your resume on the website. Mm -hmm. but how you came to recognize this new tool must be part of our toolkits, our leadership toolkits. Yeah. Um, you know, I was your crazy type A on the wheel of uh, never ending <laughs> work and stress kind of person for the first 20 years of my career. And I, I hit, um, a huge bump in the road at about uh, age 40, I encountered a, a, a very significant personal tragedy. I am so grateful to the friend that sent me off to go start understanding what mindfulness and meditation and yoga were all about as ways to heal, having nothing to do with my business life, just, you know, how do I put my whole self back together? Because I was very broken. And um, as I got into understanding what these um, ancient practices were all about, I kept going, you know, this is great. I feel better. I'm healthier. Da, 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 da. And I kept on this journey of learning more and more about the world of um, wisdom. And as I continued down my business path, I found that all of this 
lovely wisdom was, was helping me become a better leader, more connected to my teams and people, better negotiator because I could understand the other person better. I could listen better. You know, so much about me started shifting that made me a much more effective and productive leader. So um, after another 20 years of having these sort of two parallel lives, continuing on in business and um, deepening my practices and my teaching in yoga and meditation in the contemplative world, as we say, um, it was really finally time the last couple of years to bring these two diverse threads together in a formal way, which is how I decided to uh, create the uh, nonprofit Center for Compassionate Leadership. That's uh, marvelous. And Evan, how about you? I, uh, I too have spent much of my life feeling like I've in been integrating uh, separate sides of, of, uh, of things. I, um, I grew up in a semi-rural part of South Texas and then moved up to the Northeast for, uh, for college and graduate school. I went into the, the, high the fast paced business world uh, and then later on became a meditator myself. And um, every step along the way, it didn't feel like I had to be choosing between one or the other. It was really, what, what, is, uh, what is true from each of these? Sometimes it was true in both of them. Sometimes there was a benefit to choosing uh, one or the other. Um, uh, and so when, um, when Laura approached me to, to get formally involved with the work here, it was just a very natural thing for me to, uh, to really bring together the, the, the human practices of compassion, which have an enormous number of benefits with the experiential practices of leadership in the business world. Uh, and uh, so it's, uh, it's been, been a great next, uh, next integration practice, if you will. And the center stands alone, or is it closely entwined with Cornell, which is what you've been working with now for, what, about six months now, a year? About a year and a half. So we are a separate entity. Uh -huh. um, I, I kind of call them our, uh, <laughs> very grateful for them being our launch pad. Uh, we were invited to start developing this work with a cohort of uh, postdoctoral students who were learning how to be entrepreneurs as part of the, their new Cornell Tech uh, agenda and really taking a, a group of people who had either spent their lives in labs or <laughs> looking through microscopes or looking at cells to start relating on a human basis and understand how to create a, a balanced approach to creating companies and leadership was really um, quite an honor. But we are a freestanding nonprofit and work with a range of different organizations, both educational and corporate and nonprofit. So I'd like to pull on a thread here, and I'm gonna do it based on how you just presented both of yourselves here. For Laura to me, Laura used the term, a world of wisdom. 
And, uh, you know, for a guy who runs a company called the Sage Group, I, of course, immediately gravitate <laughs> to wisdom. And, and the other thing you said, Laura, was, and, and this, is, this is me distilling what you said, so forgive me in advance, but it was almost the art of becoming more you. You, you know, as you, as you started mm. peeling back the onion, yeah. It was this whole idea of becoming a me, a better me. Now, better is an elusive term, you know, right? And, and I wrote down in parentheses, what is our goal to be productive? Now, listen to you business people. I'm going to get a little philosophical here. Is your goal to be productive or is productive an outcome of a better you? Mm. Evan, you're, you're shaking your head here. You have some science behind that since you're integrating this with business? Well, I think the question's pretty, pretty philosophical. And, and I do think that uh, the, the productive outcome is a result of a better you. The, uh, the science is, is very clear that, uh, that um, the most important factor for organizational success is psychological safety. And uh, it is important to offer compassion uh, in order to create that psychological safety. And uh, I mean, compassion is, is a multi-part um, <clears throat> is, is, is multi uh, thing. It, it requires an awareness of, of other people. It requires an ability to relate in a positive way to what they're feeling, and it requires a desire to help fix whatever might, uh, might be off, whatever might be causing trouble or problems. If, if those factors are absent in an organizational environment, uh, there will be a negative impact on productivity. What you're doing is you're creating an environment to allow people to be what they are. You're allowing people to be creative. You're allowing people to offer their strongest voice, which when put together carefully, which is what the, is required of the leader, uh, when put together and brought together in ways that allow for clear, decisive action directed towards a shared goal, the, the, uh, the results are amazing. I don't know about you folks listening to this right now, but the hair kind of came up on my neck there with a uh, very well said, Evan. The, um, I, in fact, so well said, I'd like to repeat it. In fact, uh, uh, with your help, I might even uh, write this up as just a single statement that we can attach to this audio file. But notice what he said, community. The science is very clear. The number one, the number one factor in employee performance for a second, because we were talking about productivity, is the basis of psychological safety rooted in compassion. And then, and then I wrote down three bullets. Just an awareness of people, where they're at, the ability to relate to them by conveying you are aware of them right? And three, a fundamental desire to serve. 
which I feel like I'm talking to some of the greatest leaders out there because they convey that, mm. they don't articulate it in, in, a, in a scientific statement like that. Uh, when you're talking about science, uh, where are you pulling from? So the, um, <clears throat> the specific research on, on psychological safety um, was an extensive multi-year project at Google called Project Aristotle. And they set out to figure out what made teams successful. And they tested a lot of ideas. Was it the performance of the, the leader? Was it the ones who had the highest, the best academic backgrounds? Um, was it the people who'd been there the longest, who'd worked together the longest? And what, what they came out with for team performance was that psychological safety was a factor. Now, there's a whole broader range of research around positive outcomes for employee engagement, uh, lower employee turnover, higher employee creativity, which directly leads to competitive advantage, um, and more, uh, which, which draws from a, from a very deep pool of research <clears throat> around compassion science, which has been uh, studied for um, about 15 years, uh, uh, with the first studies coming from the University of Michigan. 15 years, folks. And I'm, I'm, feeling, I'm feeling a little, um, a little uh, insecure right now that it's been around 15 years since the first time I've heard of it. Well, it, it, it typically takes a, a, quite a while for things that happen in academia or for scientific discoveries to penetrate the, the general world. So don't feel so bad. <laughs> what we're learning now is that there really are companies that are embracing the uptake of these principles. And then there are beautiful case studies that are coming forth, you know, specific to how these scientific discoveries get put into practice. And it's wonderful if all the scientists figure stuff out, but if it doesn't really come into our organizations to make us all better, it doesn't really help. So um, we love, and this was really part of the desire to put all this together, to meld the science and the leadership principles with the world of wisdom, as you said, that we have the evidence now, the data that so many leaders need to convince them to shift their mindset and do something differently, even though you know the whole idea of compassion might feel a little soft and squishy, um, but as Jeff Weiner at LinkedIn is, is very fond of saying, because Compassionate Leadership is his CEO platform and has been for a number of years, that you know, true compassion in leadership is probably one of the most difficult things, but the strongest people he knows and the strongest leaders he knows really know how to uh, embody compassion because you have to live it so people can feel it, and then you can lead by adding some of these principles and skills to your regular mix of leadership. Yeah, um, greatest hits. You can't read a book and take the seven points to your team and say, take care of this. This is something that the change has to come from within, mm. and then you can start using the tools to teach it. And that's what's fascinating to me um, because I've never thought of compassion is something you could teach. Mm. 
Yes. Tell me, tell me about that journey. Yes. So there's individual compassion and, uh, you know, a, as you said, starting with you, starting from the inside, and we talk about and we teach this from the inside out. So leaders really need to start with an awareness and an adoption of principles around compassion. And they're simple, paying attention, noticing that sense of awareness that some people call mindfulness, um, being kind, not so hard for us to do. And there's a lot of science behind how as a species, we really are programmed to be kind, but our survival instincts, you know, the threat of danger tends to override a lot of that. So we can practice skills that allow us to open up our field of awareness and our, our mindset so that we can uh, react differently in moments of threat. And every moment that you are taking a breath in this lifetime, of course, your body and your field of senses are out there determining, are you safe or are you in danger? And a lot of this is about retraining the neural pathways. And there, again, there's lots of science behind the efficacy of doing this to um, react differently, to make a choice that's based on the current set of circumstances and the, the exact um, situation that's in front of you instead of on your basal survival instincts, which is, frankly, the place where most of us have always reacted for most of our life because we live in a time and a society and a, a world that's been living pretty much in a fear bubble for, for thousands of years, not just the current time we, we are so grateful to live in today. Well, I, I, I have been very cognizant of um, executive leadership recruiting and, uh, and, and what, um, and, and, uh, and trying to understand the leader's EQ, their emotional intelligence. That's been around for a while. Mm-hmm, absolutely. But I, but, but I, uh, I, that's just one factor, isn't it? It is. It, it is, and there's a real paradox about power. The EQ that you reference is very helpful in getting, uh, in helping individuals to rise in the, in the ranks of leadership. But oftentimes when leaders reach high, the higher levels, they lose some of the EQ towards other people. And it largely arises because other people begin to treat them differently. And they're not hearing the same things they've always heard. And so it's very important for leaders to be connected in ways where they, where they maintain and reinforce that own, own EQ because otherwise they start believing their own, you know, press releases. And that is, has been shown to be, be counterproductive. And, and I say that, you know, glibly, not, not, not meaning it literally, but, but, but it's really important to, for leaders to be able to remain humble. Our research shows that leaders have a particularly hard time with vulnerability. They don't want to show vulnerability to the team that they lead uh, out of fear that they will appear to be weak. The irony, of course, is that, um, that, that uh, and research, again, supports this, 
that team members respect leaders who show their vulnerability and believe they are stronger leaders. So um, we start to undermine ourselves with our own pride, uh, where if we can keep ourselves anchored, which, which goes back to what Laura was saying earlier about, about work, working on, on the, the aspects of the self-compassion, if we can keep ourselves anchored, keep ourselves connected to the team, the leadership capacity is much, much broader. Isn't it so ironic, uh, Lord, just a second here. Isn't it so ironic that we have been taught that weakness cannot be a strength? Hmm. That is so ironic to me because, as you said, you know, why would I want people acknowledging my weakness? Because weaknesses are hard to cover up without me in the room. Why would I want that? That to me is ultimate weakness. Not mm. and Now we're back to the first principle that, which you gave, which was awareness. That's right. You're not, you're not aware of what's going on in the room. So right. Laura, you were gonna say something I stepped on you. Sure, no, not a problem. That was really a lovely insight. The, um, the bridge I wanted to build between what Evan just said and your question about skills, developing skills. When uh, you're working, so we move from the inside out, we start with self-compassion. The middle ring of our model is about how we relate to others and all the skills that live in that middle ring, developing psychological safety, developing um, mindset, developing feedback skills, developing basically compassionate communication skills so that you can listen, so that you can resonate, so that you can understand and feel the other, you know, and, and the other key data point that came out of some recent research we did around COVID was that teams and team members um, just have trouble with their leaders forgetting to respect and acknowledge them. You know, something so basic as recognizing, appreciating, and connecting on a human level with the people you work with, um, which gets back to Evan's point about the, the power paradox. Um, it does, it's not that it takes so much. <laughs> it just takes little bits of fine tuning for great leaders to become even more whole in their leadership because we are talking about embracing the whole of their own humanity and the whole of humanity of the people that they work with. And I, I think what we've seen in this time of COVID as people are mostly connecting virtually, um, these, these windows into everybody's personal life keep keep opening up and, oh, there's a cat walking across your screen and there's a baby screaming in the background. And the stuff that you get to sort of shut out of your mindset when you're in the office because you don't see or hear or likely feel all that, you know, with this constant virtual communication, these aspects of our personal lives or humanity keep dripping in to the business life. And the reality is until you really integrate these sides of yourself, 
and the sides of your team and allow them to be exactly who they are, wherever they are. As you said before, Ron, that's when you get the best out of everyone. Well, I, I've been tracking for quite some time that CEOs don't quite know how to do this, but I think they recognize, not sure they articulate it very well, but they recognize without an engaged workforce. So now we're back to being aware of who they are, letting them blossom into who they are, strengthening who they are. But without an engaged workforce, you're not going to have the kind of customer care, the kind of innovation you need to stay competitive. You need an engaged workforce, but they struggle for that engagement and they blame it on society. They blame it on millennials. They blame it on all these things. But you're, I think, saying something different. It isn't a generational curve here. I don't think it is, and, and this may be a dated reference, but in the, uh, in the late 1980s, Michael Eisner was the, the CEO of Disney, and he would communicate to his organization, he would communicate to his shareholders in ways that were more personal than um, other people had done before. And it was, it was, it was a form of, of storytelling, but it was a very connectional one. And I think that it was also a very sincere one. All of these actions, of course, uh, it should go without saying, but they do have to be sincere and deeply felt. One, authentic. They have to be authentic. One cannot, one cannot communicate the words without the sentiment behind it. Without, if you've ever checked into a hotel and had them read the script, thank you very much for your loyalty. We're so happy you're here. It's, um, it, it doesn't reinforce that loyalty. Um, so the, uh, the, the humanity is, uh, is, yes, being pressured by technology, but it's pressuring all of us. It's not just pressuring the millennials who are used to looking at their phone every, every minute. And we have to overcome that by recognizing there are humans at the other side of all of this. So let's go back to research for a moment. Um, you now have, just like Google had its own uh, Petri dish of its employees to study, you have a Petri dish now at Cornell. Uh, are there any, has anyone, if it's been around for that long, can we, do we have any models of performance of companies that have um, experimented and or deployed these kind of tools. Do we have benchmarks like that? Do we have models like that? Or are we going to get them in the future? Are you gonna study these Cornell students as they go into the workforce and do a biofeedback loop to see what's working and what isn't? So, um, Laura mentioned earlier, there are a number of case studies of where these have applied. Uh, and they are, they are, they're very positive case studies. What is currently in development, um, and, and this is, uh, this is in, a, in a different relationship than our, our relationship with Cornell, is studying around compassion practices, what those factors are. Um, the creation of the compassion practice study arose out of, out of a specific case study called Midwest Billing, which was a, a very well-known case study, um, uh, again, done out at the University of Michigan. Uh, which found a very compassionate work environment, and they were able to, to, to posit some ideas about why. So we are, we are uh, the field, 
and we are we would like to uh, we are participating in, in some of this. The field is developing measures that we think are going to be very promising to be able to have be diagnostic, but we don't want to just go in and, and give people a score, then also lead to um, uh, action-oriented tools uh, beyond that to try to, to foster and develop a, um, mm -hmm. a compassionate environment. Yeah. Yeah. Whenever you give, whenever you give a, um, a scoring tool to an A-type leader, uh, watch out because you, you've given <laughs> Gollum's ring, right? It's all comparative then, right? Well, the beauty of a lot of the brain research that has uh, dated back a little longer than the 15 years um, where they studied, you know, in the fMRI, the brains of long-term meditators, short-term meditators, people who adopted compassion practices. You know, there's this, this whole other body of research that has nothing to do with organizational impact, um, but does have to do with, I mean, we can measure certain things in the brain now that we couldn't before. So there are lots of areas of measurement, some of which leaders can toy around with and some of which they can't. <laughs> So uh, I want everyone to recognize two things. One, this is going to be on the uh, Great Conversation uh, Leadership uh, segment of the website. Uh, so you will be able to hear it, feel it, sense it, and ask your own questions about who you really are as a leader. What are you evoking to the people who follow you? And how can you bring yourself to a next level of becoming, to use Laura's word, mm. becoming, uh, so you can take your team to the next level of becoming. So looking forward to having that on the website, but we're also going to give this to the Center for Compassion Leadership so they can have it on theirs, because at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is raise a next generation of leadership, one that's not only more productive, but one that's more compassionate. Mm. So uh, looking forward to doing that. Two questions before you leave, though. Um, is there anything you would like this community to read that's come, uh, come up recently? It could be a case study, it could be a book. Um, what would you like them to read or consume in tandem with this audio file? And then as well, uh, who should we invite to the table next? <laughs> I mean, I, <laughs> I think that a book that's, uh, that's come out in, in recent years is The Fearless Organization mm. by Amy Edmondson. And it gets to the heart of many of these issues that we've talked about today. Uh, I love the title. Yes. And it is, it is about um, not being afraid of failure. It is about resilience. It is about creating trust and psychological safety in teams. And when you can do that, uh, it's about the incredible results that will flow. Mm -hmm. Oh, that, that's terrific. Appreciate that. How about she's, a, she's a great business professor at Harvard. Yep. So uh, a, a very credible source. <laughs> well, and she really established so much of the work around psychological safety per se. Mm -hmm. What part yeah. of the uh, Harvard program is she in? Is she in the MBA program, the industrial uh, psychology program? What? She, she, she teaches at Harvard Business School. Okay. So teaches in the, the MBAs and then teaches their, uh, their, their additional uh, executive education program. I'd well, say invite Amy. I was just going to say, let's <laughs> we put the book out there. We also invite her into the conversation. Right. And may I add one other thing? It's, it's an invitation 
to the audience to um, take one or two minutes a day and just start to pay attention. Close your eyes and listen to your breath. Notice what's happening in your body. Notice what you're feeling. Notice uh, what your senses are saying back to you, the neuroception of uh, what's happening inside of you with something as simple as paying attention to your breath for a minute or two. And I'd, I'd love, Ron, if you heard back from any of your audience, if, if anyone actually tried it and what would happen. That I think is a great challenge. So we're gonna do a breath survey uh, and see what happens. <laughs> This has been a great conversation with the Center for Compassionate Leadership and two beautiful people who are trying to change the world. Thank you very much again. You too, Ron. Thank, Thank you, you Ron. so much.